0: This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 88 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Janelle Hardy all about how to write memoir. But first to last week's question, which was how do you process your editorial notes? Val says I go by edit and accept or tweak as needed. Sometimes I've started implementing a change she's suggested, then had to backtrack when I realised why it wasn't like that to begin with. Or I'll message her and ask questions. Usually she does a quick read through uh, my comments before kicking it over to the uh, the proofreader for a final pass. You have to keep in mind that they're just suggestions and you have the final say, but every Everything is worth considering. You're paying an editor for a reason. Meg Jolly says, how does anyone? Lots of drinking and crying and swearing. Whoops. Uh, in fairness, my uh, l- I love my editors. They both have a wicked sense of humor. So we leave uh, wee little note trails between us on the documents and it makes me giggle, which definitely helps to lighten a uh, laborious and sometimes endless seeming task. I'm truly appreciative of their insight always humbles me. There is always more to learn. I'm lucky to have found two great editors who understand my voice and don't try and change it. Carrie Hardisky said, I haven't had a professional edit yet. My CPs have been great though. I imagine I might want to actually cry when I hire an editor. (laughs) Um, I hope you don't. I hope you just, I don't know, like, embrace it because they are there to help you improve. Uh, Holly Line says, I love my editor. I go through her comments and decide which suggestions to accept and which to not, but she's almost always on the money, so I've learned to trust her notes. And Eliana West says, I can't wait to listen to this. So thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate all of the comments. This week's question is, what would you call your memoir if you ever wrote one? And uh, I'm sure many of you have no intentions of writing one, and that's fine. I'm sure many of you possibly have already written one. Some of you might want to. So just play the game. Let's play and be silly and sensible and philosophical and all of that good stuff. So yes, what would you call your memoir if you ever wrote one? Book recommendation of the week this week is thanks to Scott Kavanagh. Scott uh, recommended and very, very kindly sent me uh, a copy of Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most by Greg McCowan. And it's a bit of an ass kicking, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, it's, so I am quite clearly burned out, which I'm sure I'm going to talk, talk about in a minute, uh, even though I am reluctant to admit that. But... Um, But anyway, this book essentially gives you some tools in the form of questions to ask yourself about how to make things easier. And I underlined so much of it. I still need to go back and review the things that I've underlined so that I can make sure I'm embedding them. But it was (laughs) an ass kick. It was like a pat pat on the back. It was, uh, you know, uh, solidarity. uh, But a short, sharp reminder that this doesn't have to be hard. None of this has to be hard. You know, hard isn't a badge of honour. Burnout isn't a badge of honour. Being a workaholic isn't a badge of honour, although I slightly disagree with that one. (laughs) I love being a workaholic. Um, But, you know, he does make some excellent points. And... Yeah, I I needed that message. So thank you, Scott. And I, I'm sure there are others of you that need the message that, you know, this writing world, this writing career doesn't have to be hard. You can make it easy, easier, not necessarily easy, but easier. Um, yeah, so uh, I really recommend, if anyone listening is a workaholic, I really recommend you go and read this book because, wow, <laughs> thanks for the arse kick, Scott. okay rebel author diary anthology submissions are open but not for much longer we have only about a month left so this is the the final countdown and yes i now have that song in my head and i'm so glad i didn't start singing that for you um but uh, it is the final countdown so if you have any intention of getting a story in now is the time to get it written and get it handed in uh this week I also did, a, a you know, <laughs> being very unhumble, uh, but what I think is a really, really good interview with Christina Stanley. So Christina was on the show last week, but I also went onto her YouTube channel. Um, and importantly, we discussed the difference between copy editing and structural editing. And it was a fascinating uh, discussion. I think we both took stuff away from it as well. And yeah, if you've ever like wondered the differences between different types of editing, this is for you. So I highly recommend you go and look at that. Now I had something else I was supposed to share and I can't, I can't for the life of me remember what it was. So I'm going to be really upset when I forget this and send it off and it's all submitted and I haven't included it. But anyway, uh Hopefully, whatever it was, I will be able to share it next week. Uh, in personal update, I have sent sci characters to the editor. Um, and I have crashed quite hard uh, since then. I have had a number of, like, health. Minor, very minor, very minor health things. Um, but no less, you know, they are health issues and uh, it's just a reminder to me that even though creatively I'm not burned out there is actually only so much my body can take and uh, yeah I need to slow down you can probably hear it in my voice this week it is a little bit deeper than normal um and it's just because I'm so tired I suppose I don't, I don't I don't know, I just, I feel like I need a holiday, that's what I feel like I need. Um, But equally, I also have a launch to prepare for, (laughs) so I can't exactly take a holiday right now. Um, So, yes, a few announcements then. I will be launching Side Characters on the 29th of July, and the pre-order will go up next week, so I'm sure I will start to talk about the book a bit more then. Um, And, oh, okay, (sighs) pause for percolation and intellection just then. Okay, so I'm going to admit that I'm also admit, admit it like it's something I've done wrong. No. I am going to uh, oh, this is harder to confess than I thought because I'm, I don't know I'm nervous. Anyway right, okay Uh, I am going to run a live masterclass as part of um, the launch of side characters It's going to be a one hour one hour teaching segment and then a segment for questions uh, afterwards. There'll be uh, lots of resources that you can download as part of it and then afterwards I will upload it all into a place so that you can have the video, the audio, the transcript. The audio and transcript I will obviously do uh, like after the class so that will take a couple of days Um, but I will bundle that up and if you can't make it or if I sell out of places um, then you'll be able to purchase that afterwards as well. And so yeah, it will be limited. I think the Zoom's capacity only has 99 spaces. I don't even know if I will fill 99 spaces. I might limit it to like 50 spaces or 30 spaces, just because I'm shitting my pants. Uh, But we'll see. Anyway, um, yes, I am actually genuinely super excited as well as terrified to do this because it's so nice to like the census course that I uh released first was all like self-taught run at your own pace but what it will be is really nice to have that interaction um and to have that live segment so yeah I am super excited about this masterclass and if it goes well and if people are interested then I am going to do a masterclass for each of the other books as well uh all live And then I can bundle them up for people who aren't able to make it or, um, you know, didn't want to join the live. And so, yeah, I am super excited for this. And I'm super excited for the launch as well. Um, This book is, clocks in just about, uh, actually, I think it's about 10k bigger than prose. And prose was a bit of a fucking tome. So, so... (laughs) I don't know what that makes side characters, but it's a beast, uh, and I am excited uh, to sh- finally start sharing it with you. Albeit also proper crapping it. Uh, I don't know why each successive book seems to create more pressure on me, um, but psychologically, I just—I'm a wanker, and I just—I'm horrible to myself. <laughs> Like, I get to this moment and and this time period between handing that book to the editor and then uh, getting those first reviews in or, or publishing it getting those first pre-orders in is terrifying I'm like what if I failed what if I haven't what if I forgotten how to write non-fiction what you know all of this nonsense and so my critique partners I'm, I feel terribly sorry for them because they have to you know dish out equal numbers of ass kicks to hats on the back be like it's fine you did it it's another good book i'm like but is it anyway i am sure you guys all know this ridiculous to and fro in your own brains but uh i just wanted to be completely honest because that is where i'm at right now um yeah i just i hate myself so much sometimes (laughs) i don't know why i do this to myself i wish i didn't anyway Let's move on, because I feel like I'm waffling. Oh, no, wait, wait. I'll tell you what I'm doing next week. So next week is half term. And so I'm really not sure what I'm going to be doing. But what I do know is that uh, with the other podcast, Next Level Authors, I am in the challenge to get uh, my audiobook done by the end of June. So I will also be releasing uh, the audiobook of uh, 13 Steps to Evil, some point in the next couple of months we all know that the uploads to various platforms are <laughs> take various amounts of time so um yeah i i will not fail my challenge so i will have that finished by the end of june and once i have that finished i'm then going to choose between prose and side characters i still don't know which one. Oh, i think i was supposed to put a poll up in facebook and i forgot uh, anyway um Yes, so I think my next week will be working on getting the pre-orders up for the book and um, eventually I'll get the masterclass up as well and I will be recording in the audio booth and I will start to um, work on the the marketing for side characters. And I will also... (sighs) because I have all the time in the world, I will also read Victor because I still haven't read the, sec- read the second book because as soon as I'm like on top of the marketing for side characters, I am going to reopen Trey uh, to do that final edit before I send it to the editor. So yes, that's where I am at this week. All right, that was my personal update. So next we have Rebel of the Week. The Rebel of the Week this week was Amy Sund. Amy says, when I was four, it was in the spring. My brother was six months or so old. I was wholly unimpressed with him and not so attached to my mum either. I got pretty upset about something and dragged my suitcase out of the closet, packed it up with my favourite things and took it outside and sat, it, sat on it at the end of the driveway for a really long time, waiting for my dad to come home so we could run away and leave mummy with the baby. I didn't make it until my dad got home. I was too impatient, I guess. (laughs) I love that. I love that rebellion. I kind of love the kitty rebellions. They're so cute. Uh, Even when we become older and, and adults, I still think it's super cute. We are really low on uh, rebel of the week stories. So I would love you to send me a story. It genuinely can be any kind of rebellion, big, small or somewhere in between. And if you don't have a rebellion, maybe your partner does or your brother or your sister. Um, But yeah, please do send me a rebel story. I really want to keep this segment going. Um, So yeah, if you haven't ever done it, now is your your chance. I don't bite mostly. So you know, Um, you can email your rebel story to rebel author podcast at gmail.com or instagram me at sasha black author no new patrons this week but a big thank you to returning patron cindy a huge thank you to all my existing patrons as well Um, i hope you enjoyed the uh one minute of audio that i posted Uh, (laughs) (laughs) which was <laughs> like a verbal kick up the ass from me. Um, I had a proper cackle whilst I was uh, recording it and it's been pretty popular. So if you are a patron and you haven't checked it out, please do go and check it out. And uh, if enough of you tell me you want them again, I will definitely record another one next month. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content like me giving you a kick up the butt, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. All right, that is it from me this week. Uh, Let's get on with the interview. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Janelle Hardy. Janelle is the founder of the Art of Personal Mythmaking and the host of the Personal Mythmaking Podcast. She teaches memoir writing as a tool to help make sense of past trauma. So you can rewrite the story into a personally empowered, narrative. Janelle's approach combines her background in bodywork with her past teaching writing at York University and writing for local newspapers and magazines in Canada.
1: Hello and welcome. Hi Sasha, I'm so happy to be here. But
0: no, thank you for coming. So first of all, before I um, get you to tell everyone a, l- a little bit about your journey, what is What is bodywork?
1: Oh, yeah, maybe it means something different over over where you are. Body work is just a general term for hands-on healing work. So massage is the most obvious form of body work. Um, It can include acupuncture, craniosacral therapy. And then the version that I do is most popularly known as rolfing. It's structural integration. So it's using deep tissue massage techniques to release fascia and, um, movement lessons to bring you back into alignment.
0: Ah, okay. I, uh, I have a chiropractor who I adore and bends me into all kinds of shapes and my father's partner, um, does a lot of, uh, like massage and yoga and she's just trained in a particular therapy that I cannot for the life of me remember, but like sort of works with, it's not Reiki, but it, it, yeah, I will think of it during the course of this anyway, and then I'll let you know. But anyway, um, ah, okay, cool. So tell everyone a little bit about you and how you came to where you are today.
1: Okay, so uh, I am in my early 40s now. <laughs> I don't know why that came out first. But um, it's interesting because it feels like, oh, life does change as you get older, things shift in, in the body and um, in circumstances um, but I was born and raised in the far north of Canada. It's called the Yukon Territory which is above British Columbia and beside Alaska on the lands of the Tongquachan and Kwanlandun peoples and um, I kind of lead with that because being a Yukoner and then a Canadian <laughs> has had a huge impact on my identity and I just love I love that area so much. Um, I'm currently living in Vancouver, BC, but I'm a Yukoner through and through. And and I think starting out living in a really remote place with real extremes of um, weather and um, sunshine, you know, it's far enough north that it doesn't get dark in the summer and it's quite dark in the winter, really set me up to be... Uh, a little bit out of step, or, you know, you might say being a rebel in my life path. So I spent a lot of time doing studies in different things that didn't really seem to make sense to other people or be connected to each other, dance and anthropology, and also being super creative, Um, always writing and painting and dancing, um, doing some choreography as well, and and then getting training in um, bodywork and offering hands-on healing support to people. And through all of those experiences from my early 20s, I was also a solo parent, single mother, um, and often self-employed or juggling contracts. And so all of these things that I was doing and becoming that seemed to not make a lot of sense started to coalesce in my mid-30s and come together into what I do now, which is the art of personal myth-making, the transformational memoir writing course um, and writing circles that I offer. And what I find really interesting about how I came to where I am now is that I could not have foreseen what I've created and the kind of work that I do. I couldn't have dreamed it up But by continuing to follow the pull of interest and curiosity and my creative flow and my desire to support people in their healing journeys, as well as um, going down my own healing path, by trusting and continuing to be kind of single-minded in following that pull, um, really not able to ignore it there was this tipping point where I decided to offer some classes in my living room. One of them was an intuitive painting class, which I thought everyone would sign up for. No one signed up for it. Everyone being, you know, I put posters up around town. I didn't even have a website or maybe I had a website, but I didn't really know how to market at this point (laughs) besides posters on bulletin boards around town. This was about six years ago. And the other one was this idea. I was like, Oh, Um, personal myth-making and I didn't really know what it was but it sounded it popped up in my mind and I thought this would be fun to explore and four people signed up for that course and no one signed up for my intuitive painting course and so the work that I'm doing now about six years ago started to show up in my teaching and I just kept following the threads of um, working with personal life story um, how do we support healing and transformation? Because that's really necessary when we're digging into our own previous experiences. And how can we make it fun and mythic as well? And um, so,
0: I think that's um, like a fascinating journey. And uh, Canada is is one of the places that is like top three on my bucket list to go to. I although um, I forget the uh, my geography is like embarrassingly bad. Um, I feel like it's Victoria. I don't, is that a place like somebody with lakes and mountains is that yeah anyway I, I've i seen some absolutely <laughs> gorgeous lakes and mountains and I just want to retire where there are lakes and mountains and like no people so I'm pretty much sure I'm going to want to try and find a way to get a like citizenship in Canada anyway um yes so I love I love that journey um, and I remembered it was called Rosilo that's the uh treatment that she she works on now oh, anyway interesting so we are here. You've mentioned how you um, came to do the myth making um, 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 career, but can we can we start at the beginning? Because lots of people hear about memoir, lots of people hear about biographies, autobiographies, and I don't think it's necessary necessarily clear unless you are writing those things what or, or you know reading them prolifically what the differences are so like what, what yeah what is the difference okay. between memoir biography autobiographies um yeah let's start there
1: yeah that's a great place to start so biographies are account an account of someone's life written by someone else and it's pretty linear from start to finish um they're often written about famous people, public figures, um, you know, people where we might actually want to know uh, all of the details, regardless of how interesting they are or whether they form a story or not. So you'll see a lot of biographies about um, significant people, whether living or dead. I'm sure we will have, may he
0: rest in peace, lots of biographies of Prince Philip coming out very soon in the UK.
1: (laughs) For sure. yeah. then there's autobiography which is like a biography it's an account of your life written by yourself but like biography it's super linear it's often running from the start to the finish it includes all all the details you know maybe not all the details but it tries to include as many details as possible um so it's more of a timeline story often again uh Famous people, public figures, they might have an autobiography um, that's ghostwritten or sometimes written by them that, that is written to really serve the hunger of a public that wants to know everything about someone. And um, <clears throat> to be honest, I don't find biography or autobiography all that interesting. And I find memoir more interesting. And the reason is with memoir, you're writing it about yourself. Um, And it is a collection of memories and stories oriented around a theme that creates a story arc, but it's not meant to give a full account of your life, it does not have to be linear, it doesn't have to go from start to finish, year by year, it it can be an opportunity to explore an interesting arc or phase or theme of your life, um, where you still don't actually know all that much about that person outside of the theme if you're the reader but you know a great deal about that person contained within that theme and the cool thing about memoir is that memoirists can write more than one memoir right because Mm. of the the creative flexibility of orienting your stories and exploration around a theme rather than a straightforward, linear account of your life.
0: So it's probably a massive cliche to say this, but the most famous example I can think of is, I'm guessing Eat, Pray, Love is a memoir? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, Okay, cool. Um, so I didn't prep you for this question, but what do you mean by myth-making? And is this related to, like with memoir, I suppose there is a line between, writing factual truth whatever that is versus like your personal truth and then like truth in terms of story story terms like is that where you is that connected to myth making like talk to me about those different types of truth and how like what that means in terms of myth
1: making Mm -hmm. yeah so um one understanding of myth is that it's a story that's not true But another understanding of myth is that it's a story that may not be factually true, but has a lot of power to shape your understanding of yourself and the world around you. So examples of um, uh, collective myths is patriarchy. You know, that men uh, are somehow better than women is a really obvious one. Um, And so we get an opportunity when we start to examine myths Culturally and societally, as well as internally, um, to rewrite those narratives, to reshape because myth um, is powerful, right? Be, becoming mythic is is creating a way of uh, a way of understanding yourself and being in the world that lifts you up into a truth about yourself, even if um, maybe factually. Uh, you can't quite put your finger on it. So I can use a personal example to illustrate that. I um, was very shy for a long time as a teenager and into my 20s, the kind of shyness where you go bright purple in your face and um, uh, uh, get so tangled up in the anxiousness of trying to figure out how to participate in a conversation that you're just horribly awkward when you do get something out and then if anyone pays attention to you or responds to you you know like then I would blush and then I'd shut down because of the blushing so it was really uncomfortable um, and so I had this sort of story or myth about myself that I was too sensitive that I was super shy that um, I was socially awkward um, none of those things are true anymore and the reason they're not true is because I started exploring ways to untangle that little story about myself, little but powerful. I started learning how to heal shyness. um, Because although I am introverted, and although I am sensitive, there's no reason um, to stay stuck in this shyness that would um, shut me down. I started understanding that shyness can be related to a freeze response, um, which is part of a, uh, an interrupted trauma response in the body and the nervous system, and learn how to work with that and thaw that freeze response. I started learning that high sensitivity is actually a thing. There's a name for people with who are super sensitive and um, highly sensitive people, um, maybe also having empath tendencies, which is you know, being able to really feel other people's emotional states. Um, And in learning, unraveling and doing my healing work, I've come to this understanding that I am sensitive and highly attuned to other people's emotional states. And I'm actually quite sociable. And I love people. (laughs) right my mythology has gone from I'm super shut down and awkward and shy to my sensitivity is actually a gift not a detriment and um, as long as I'm paying attention to habits of shutting down I can I can be myself in social situations and around people and enjoy it so that reframe is like I'm rewriting a little myth about myself so that it becomes empowering rather than disempowering I'm not saying that it's easy to to do that but it's really worthwhile I'm so grateful that I'm not shy anymore um I know there's more to this question but I figure I'll pause for a moment
0: yeah I I, this is I find this deeply fascinating because I definitely have written myths like mental myths about myself um you know my wife and I make a bit of a joke because my wife is an introverted thinker but a very social person she is an absolute charmer and that's what got me she just charmed the pants off of me literally <laughs> figuratively. <laughs> and figuratively uh, <laughs> and um we've always had this <laughs> sort of in joke that I am so socially awkward that I'm actually entertainment to watch in a room of people (laughs) because I'm that like awkward um and yet I think I have not necessarily healed that because I think it's getting worse the older that I get but um I found like a, a um I don't know what the word is like a um like a way around it. So one of the things I'm highly competitive, like that is my number one strength uh, on the like Clifton <laughs> strength thing. I am number one competition and that means I will compete with myself. And so one of the things that I won't do is allow myself to defeat myself. Like, uh, you know, so I have to beat myself, which is contradictory to what I've just said, but I won't allow like fear to get in the way. So like, I remember um, the first time I went to the London book fair, I was like, physically gagging outside the venue because I just couldn't bring myself to 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 walk into a venue with 25,000 people in it um (laughs) yeah I know right and um you know but I did it and and you know I I continue to do it and I continue to network and and I have a huge network now but that doesn't mean it's not terrifying and and yeah so anyway I don't necessarily think I've healed myself but I've definitely found some work
1: around you've found a great strategy and I mean that's a that's a great story um to have about yourself that you're competitive and um but to use it as a strength whatever it works right (laughs) to turn it into a strength and then figure out how to integrate it into the rest of your life
0: Exactly, exactly. How many people can I, you know, talk to this time, Mm -hmm. even though I don't want to talk Mm -hmm. to anyone, you know? Um, So yeah, let's, let's go back to like the other side of the question, which is, um, what is that line between writing factual truth, Mm -hmm. your personal truth, and then, you know, like truth in terms of story arc and, and story terms? Like, how does that work with memoir?
1: Yeah, so I was thinking about that a little bit. And I came up with a like a little example to try to illustrate it. So um, a factual truth for me, my parents had to give my beloved dog away when I was 12 years old. That's a fact. Um, It's also fact that they told me that they had to give the dog away that they found a home for him, you know, we that home that was out of town, our dog was not neutered. And Um, And he just kept running away and causing trouble in the neighborhood. And so there were good reasons why my parents had to give the dog away. They found a good home for him. Those are all facts. But my personal truth at the age of 12 with a dog that I had um, raised up and trained since I was 10 that I loved so much, my personal truth was that I felt incredibly betrayed by their decision. Um, even though now I understand the reasons as an adult, that didn't matter as a 12 year old. So the story truth, if I wanted to write a short story about this for me would be about betrayal and loss as illustrated by my dog being given away by my parents. However, if my parents were to write about that same factual truth, their story truth their personal truth or one of my parents the personal truth would not be um feeling betrayed and it would their story truth would not be about betrayal and loss their story truth would more likely be about um having to make a very grown-up and painful decision that they knew would hurt me and my three siblings right so the same factual truth explored um by different people is going to be very different as a story.
0: Mm. That's a like, oh, I find that so fascinating. And I almost wish there were memoirs about the same time, the same memories from different people's point of views. Cause I think that would be such a fascinating like insight into it's like, like my background is psychology, so I can't mm, help yes. but wonder about the <laughs> psychology of that. But um, yeah, oh, I love that. Thank you for uh, um, explaining that. So uh, I mean, let's rewind a step. What is the basic structure of, of a memoir book? And how does that like differ in terms of other types of story structure?
1: Well, this, so a memoir structure, if you're thinking of working with um, a personal truth that becomes a story that you're exploring theme typically heading towards a narrative arc of transformation and this is in part because of my my lens is transformative experiences and supporting transformation but the structure will be uh, a transformational arc in a story Oh, okay. So
0: literally the same as as like a normal story uh, in terms of like a character, a protagonist having a character arc.
1: Yeah. So that's I mean that's the easiest, most familiar way to to work with memoir, um, and and I usually just stick with the familiar with story. Uh, but there are, in terms of form, many different options, and I also think it's it's important to consider that, that, that regular structure of I'm telling a story by illustrating an experience to show um, some sort of learning that I've had uh, is quite a cultural construction of what we consider to be interesting story. And so there is opportunity to just consider do I, do I actually want to tell that kind of story about myself? Do I want to structure my story in that classic form, which is super engaging? Or, um, and I think it's useful to consider that not everyone that wants to write memoir actually wants to publish. So if you take out the imperative to try to make money and try to build an audience and um, all of those other pressures that come along with publishing, if you strip that away and you just consider... What is what are the stories about myself that I want to share, um, not necessarily to publish, but to share perhaps with two loved ones or, you know, to wait until significant people in my story have died so I don't hurt their feelings and then share with descendants. You end up getting a little more freedom to, to think about, okay, well, maybe I don't have to orient all my stories around transformation, but maybe I can orient my stories around what is super delightful for me. You know, what I'm just randomly offering examples right now, but maybe making art or let's say sewing. I'm thinking of my mom making art and sewing has been uh, a driving force. Creativity as the um, orienting structure in one's life how fun would it be if you're just writing for yourself to simply explore that kind of thread? I have
0: never thought of, like I think it's because I'm so stuck in the indie world and doing this as a career and making money from it that I never considered memoir not for publication. Um, but I suppose in a way, you know, I spent most of my youth up until the time that I went to university journaling. I mean, I literally have dozens and boxes and boxes in my loft of journals, which is in a way, I suppose, a form of early memoir. Um, But yeah, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, come on, we all know that writing is healing. And so I just can't believe I never (laughs) thought of that. And I now kind of want to go away and write about some things that happened but good and bad and and what they meant and and yeah oh I I feel very inspired right now
1: oh cool you
0: <laughs> know yeah and I literally thought that would be one genre I would never write about but that I have this um, post-it. Actually, I have this post-it twice on my computer because it's so important to me, uh, which says, you have permission. Um, And I, like, even though I'm a rebel, like so often I have to give myself permission to do something because, oh, there's this word again, but, you know, I build up these bullshit myths in my head that, you know, I have to do something this way because it's always been done that way or or I can't do this or I can, you know, whatever. And um, yeah, I guess I have permission to write things that I'm not going to publish which is bizarre because I, of course I do <laughs> but yeah. yeah so thank yeah. you for giving me permission for that I uh, will you're, take that away
1: you're welcome um, I want to share just like one more little inspiration um I have this collection of different kinds of memoir which is really fun because there's so many so many ways that you can create form in published memoir as well but One of the books, or it's a trilogy that I love so much, is James Harriet's stories about being a veterinarian in Northern England on the border, I think, of England and Scotland in the 1920s, a large vet veterinarian. And I mean, clearly this is published, but what I I find so interesting is that he didn't set out to write memoir. It's a little more linear because as a young man around 20, he graduated from veterinarian school and then ended up with this job. Uh, in a small village, working with all the farmers' animals uh, and their pets as well. And um, he he ended up writing little articles for the local paper, and people loved his storytelling so much that the syndication grew, and eventually he ended up publishing these books. So um, the the books are just story by story, week by week, his absolutely delightful little adventures living his life you know like we can be just happy delightful storytellers there's still an element of considering how to tell a story really well and describe the circumstances but it doesn't have to be this big dramatic book it can be just a series of little stories within someone's bigger life story that are intended to delight and entertain and just kind of bring someone along in the flow of their life without aiming towards a big message or a big uh, lesson, you know.
0: And I think that's such a wonderful reminder to be present in the moment, because, um, you know, Unless you're present in the moment, you don't see the 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 little joys in life or the little moments that that happen. And it's funny, isn't it? Because when families get together um, and they haven't been together for a while, it's always the anecdotes that that you're sharing. And it's actually rarely the big dramas that happened in, you know, in the past that people talk about. It's the time that, you know. <laughs> my wife's sister spray painted my wife's name in the garage uh, on the, on the (laughs) garage wall and then tried to get her in trouble except that my wife's dyslexic. So at the time she couldn't spell her name. And so the dad knew (laughs) knew it was her sister, you know, it's little thing. It's little anecdotes. Like that's one of my favorite stories that they tell. And every time they get back together, they tell that story and everybody loves it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like these tiny moments that, um, you know yeah i just i feel very um what's the word reflect not not reflective um what uh, nostalgic i think is the word i'm looking for right now yeah like and mm-hmm. and i feel like i've had a reminder to to appreciate those small things that happen like day to day because you can tell a wonderful story about those little things that happen yeah um, okay, so what are what are some of your tools to help um, a writer deal with what can be, I suppose, overwhelming memories? Because obviously, a lot of memoir, um, often people write about trauma that's happened and like the, their their healing and 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 where they are now. So, what 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 tools or or methods do you have to help writers dealing with those kinds of um, memories?
1: Yeah, I because of my background in hands on healing work. Um, my approach is really body centric. So, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, most contemporary cultures these days, certainly English speaking cultures are very much in their heads all the time. We're really taught, certainly I'm speaking as a Canadian woman, but we're really taught to, um, think and rationalize and intellectualize and prioritize, uh, our thinking processes, our cognitive functions, and we're rewarded for that. And from a young age, we are simultaneously shamed out of really being in our body, being joyful in movement. We're also, most schools involve far too much sitting So we're taught from a young age to shut down our body's impulse to move, which is actually very healthy and movement helps with our cognitive function, but we're not taught, (laughs) taught that. And so by the time we reach adulthood, many of us, especially, I think, um, creative introverts, uh, a lot of creative work does involve sitting and working on the creative work or, or being more still we're really good at being in our heads and we've learned how to not feel or pay attention to a lot of what's going on in our body. Um, Part of that process of learning how to ignore our physical impulses um, also teaches us how to ignore a healthy trauma response and allow that cycle to come to completion. So an example would be if you um, get in a car accident and um, you're okay but the shock is there your trauma impulse um, healthy trauma response would be because it's a shock to the system and you need to try to keep yourself safe will it be to either fight or run flight um, and if neither of those options are available often it will be then you'll kind of freeze up and and then after those responses are expressed there is a discharge of that And the discharge is actually what gets set down, shut down, because it often looks like crying, um, laughing uncontrollably, uh, talking or kind of babbling or a lot of shaking, um, uh, panicky or um, just behavior that seems more animalistic to people watching you and often to yourself because of how we've been taught to respond to these responses and if that is uh, a threat to social functioning, which it usually is, we'll be, we'll be taught to shut that down because our brains are so powerful by um, uh, holding it in, by trying not to cry, by uh, trying to control any shaking, which is a real shame because that those responses are actually what will reset our nervous systems so that we're not stuck in the trauma state. But it, when we learn how to shut these responses down for small traumas, uh, uh, as well as big ones when we habitually learn how to shut it down by the time we're adults we're in a state where the shutdown is our kind of default reflex and then things can get more stressful and specifically to writers and creatives how that often expresses itself to you is um procrastination uh overwhelm um <laughs> yes, yeah, wow. scatteredness uh self-doubt a lot of these um resistance states and creative blocks are actually shiftable by tending to your body and your nervous system because they're related to a a suppressed trauma response in my opinion and my experience which means that if we are trying to work with writer's block um, through all the tips and techniques that uh, are useful tips and techniques but never address Our body and our nervous system we're not ever going to get very far and so to kind of tie that back into your original question when people want to write about themselves they're often surprised especially if they're really stuck in the head that that they're having confusing responses pins and needles or shifts of temperature or panic or shakiness when they enter into a story uh, even a story or experience they thought they left behind and healed from, if our nervous system doesn't agree with us, our nervous system gets a chance through our body responses to tell us that we have not yet healed um, what was being held onto. Um, because with if, if there's a charge from a trauma response in our system, our nervous system does not understand time the same way that our minds do so. Even if it happened 20 or 30 years ago, and you're thinking, "Well, that was you know, that's ancient history," but your body is saying, "No, it's not. I've been holding this every day, and it's still real to me." And so, <clears throat> what happens when people don't um, have much knowledge about these responses is it can be really scary because um, it seems strange, not natural, even though it is natural. So, if, and if it's scary, people are worried about talking about the responses and also don't know what kind of help to seek out. Um, and maybe the, the fear of being re-traumatized really comes up and it feels too overwhelming. So people back away from working with their life stories for that reason. And I've had um, students <laughs> confess to wanting to write their memoir but not doing it for 10, 20, even 35 years in part because of creative block and in part, because of not knowing how to work with the painful parts of their life story without support.
0: I find this fascinating, um, not least from the psychological perspective and how connected our bodies are with, with our minds. We are always told that our brains are super powerful and, and you know that they are connected and that's why meditation is so good. And yet as a Brit, stiff upper lip darling you know um and I know that's a cliche but it is actually still true um and you know we are we are told to to have a stiff upper lip and I make a joke constantly about being dead on the inside which is like I you know I I laugh about it but it's actually not funny (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. actually terrible um you know we we and one of the things that I'm trying very hard to do with my son is to allow him, not allow, that's the wrong word, to encourage him to have his emotions and to share his emotions, because in Britain, especially, and, you know, I'm sure this is the case for other um, countries as well, but you know our men aren't allowed to cry they're not allowed to you know they just all they have is is this sort of rage or or normal bog standard emotion I don't want that for my son I want him to be able to cry if he gets upset because um you know Dory can't find Nemo or whatever mm-hmm. um you know and 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 for him to know that that's okay um yeah so I, I find this I find this fascinating or All right, one of um, the things um, that I have read is that you swear by outlining your memoir using a fairy tale or using fairy tales to help one identify key themes in their story. So like, wait one, what? Like, why (laughs) fairy tales? Um, And how can somebody use that to help them construct their own memoir?
1: Mm Mm-hmm oh I love that you're asking this I actually have a free on-demand workshop by the way on how to outline your memoir using fairy tales um, which I'll happily share that link at the end of the call um, because that workshop is the foundational workshop to my all to my work with people and and to my course so Fairy tales, I use fairy tale because it's the most commonly understood word, but really what I'm talking about are ancient tales, which includes fairy tale, myth, folklore, fables, even family lore, any sort of story that has lasted more than a generation and that doesn't originate from literary sources. um, That actually originates from oral history. So the reason for this is that these stories carry some potency to them they they're powerful enough whatever the story is about that they're being passed down from generation to generation some fairy tales have actually been traced back to as old as four thousand years which is really quite phenomenal when you <laughs> think about it um, and so we can consider that these stories carry um story arcs, narrative arcs that are very resonant or they wouldn't continue to be passed down. They carry archetypal symbolism through the, at the literal symbols in the stories but also in the characters. So there's an archetypal power to a certain kind of personalities and characters. Um, and when people resonate with a story And then they start to work with it. So we'll just say with a fairy tale, they start to work with it. Invariably what happens is there are really powerful clues in that fairy tale that can guide someone when they're wanting to write a memoir and um, they're not maybe not entirely sure what their memoir is going to be about. And I really encourage people, even if they have a clear idea, to be open to the fact that as they they work with their life stories and do their healing work, the story might change shape. It might not be the story they think they're going to tell, but the story that gets uncovered is going to be powerful. And because in all of our lives, we have so many stories and so many different themes and experiences we could explore, it's quite overwhelming if you just dive in without any sort of structure. And I find that starting by identifying a fairy tale that you really resonate with, and that could be because you really like the story. It could also be because you don't like the story, but your attention keeps getting called to it. That, that's a clue right there. That story, when you start to work with it in relation to your own life stories will offer some discernment in terms of a handy narrative arc, symbolism, and characters that you can choose to explore and then as you're generating story it helps with okay these stories and memories belong with this theme and these other ones that are showing up don't clearly belong so I'm just going to set them aside for my next memoir let's say
0: I love a fairy tale. (laughs) but I uh, also love really dark fairy tales,
1: though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know
0: what that says about me. Um, But uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I've never I never thought about, you know, marrying a fairy tale with like personal history or personal memories. So I think that's fascinating. Um, Memoirs need to be authentic, right? They are about us. They're about aspects of our lives and our own personal truth. So that can mean including the shit that we're ashamed of. Mm -hmm. um, You know, and I know is it Renee or Brene Brown talks about shame. And um, one of the things that I try very hard to do is not be ashamed of anything and i try to be really honest on this podcast and share the highs and the lows and and the embarrassing moments and the failures but um that's really fucking hard um mm-hmm. and so how how do you do that in a memoir how can you include the stuff that you're ashamed of or that you aren't proud of or that you know you made a mistake because i think you know that probably is quite important to have that because our truth is made up of both the things that we did right and the things that we did wrong and the decisions that we made along the way. So yeah, like how, how do you make peace with that and include it and write it and still be authentic and truthful?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm from a storytelling perspective, perfect characters are not very interesting, are they? (laughs) Very true. So uh, having some humility and willingness to share the darker or uglier sides of ourselves is good for storytelling Um, it's good for relatability and it also it just means we're human none of us are perfect Um, I'm remembering right now I just read or no last summer I read Mary Carr's first memoir which it's called the Liars Club. It's kind of uh, it's known to be a classic. Um, and having heard it's a classic in the memoir genre, I got curious. I was like, okay, I need to read this. Um, I was staying at my mom's for a couple months, and it was so funny that. And the Liars Club is um, okay. The Liars Club is a pretty tight time frame from the age of seven to nine. Um, And a lot of it is about her life with dysfunctional parents as a child. But what was so funny, and which is what prompted me to start reading the book aloud to my mom, and we ended up reading the whole thing that way, because it was hilarious. And the reason it was so hilarious was in part because she didn't shy away from telling stories about her childish bad behavior. And there's this just enchanting scene where she's on an airplane um being sent back to her dad after being with her mom um, with her older sister for a while and it's in the middle of the night everyone on the airplane is asleep she's got this barbie in her hand and the man in front of her tilted his seat back and all she can see is his shiny bald head and she just goes through this hilarious and devastating scene where she hits his head with her Barbie so hard that the Barbie's head pops off and disappears. <laughs> and the guy wakes up and you know like it's it's a disaster of naughty childish behavior. And if she hadn't included those moments, she just wouldn't have been as interesting.
0: Oh, I think that's hilarious. I think that's absolutely hilarious. I've, I have written down The Liars Club just because now I, w- I want to, uh, to read it and have a giggle at her naughty childish behavior.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's a tough story too, but her sense of humor and her willingness to, to be a naughty young human just makes it such an awesome memoir.
0: There's one other, I think, really important question uh, that I need to ask, because memoir is obviously real. I say real, um, you know, because we've talked about truth and and what truth Mm -hmm. is, but that brings a problem when you are writing about other people.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: how do you avoid, you know, legal terms when the majority of fiction books have that sort of copyright legal blurb in the front that says all characters are fictitious and not you know uh, like of a hum- you know whatever it is anyway um and so how do you avoid those legal issues because obviously if you're writing memoir then it is quite clear that you are writing about real people in your novel and not everybody is going to agree with your truth so mm-hmm. yeah talk to me talk to me about that
1: Okay, so just a little disclaimer first. My specialty is really in supporting people in getting to the first draft of their memoir, and in offering the healing and transformation that helps them get their first draft generated. So my, so I I do not teach um, getting to publication, uh, partly because there are so many great people out there teaching that. I don't need to figure that out and teach it. Um, but one. It, it, is a, it is a really big question that needs to be considered if you want to publish. And it is also a question that can stop people from starting. So what I typically say to my students, this question comes up all the time, is um, don't plan to publish first. you You're writing your first draft to really examine your life and um, explore it and write it for yourself only. Um, if you can give yourself permission and commit to not sharing or showing it to anyone else and um, take away any self-censoring that might stop you from writing, that's a huge gift that you can do. And just write the damn thing for yourself, get out all your petty grievances, work through the the big feelings that might be getting in the way of a really good story, right? Or work through the big feelings that need to be part of the the story when you start revising but just don't think about that until you've gotten until you've actually gotten a lot of your stories on paper then there's the circling back around and revising and deciding what stays and what goes and also touching on the ethical issues not just the legal issues but the ethical issues of Um, can if you want to publish can you live with the consequences of hurt feelings um, estrangements and um, being shut out of community or family that might happen of course this really depends on everyone's personal story with the example of Mary Carr's The Liars Club there's this incredibly beautiful introduction where she talks about how she, her mom doesn't show up in a good light. Her her parents were both battling addictions in the Liars Club and were not necessarily the best parents. But her mom also gave Mary um, full permission to write her experience and and not to um, get in the way of that. Not if ev- not everyone <laughs> who's going to be portrayed in a bad light is going to give that permission. But every circumstance is individual. So there's a point at which it will be really important to consider, do I want to publish? And what will the consequences be? Have I stayed so true to my own story, my own truth, and, and the facts, as well as my understanding, that no one can argue with me about that? Um, that's one way to keep things really clean. And then there's, there's, there's a, there's a point at which you don't, really have control over how people will react it might be the people you think are upset won't be upset and it might be that um, people that you thought you presented in a praiseworthy light will be upset because um, they don't see it the same way so it's really hard to know but I really encourage people to not let those worries and fears stop them from at least writing their first draft
0: yeah uh, especially because it will be Like, after everything we've talked about, I can see how healing and, like, cathartic that would be. Um, If for no other reason than I know when I was journaling, getting that shit out, I always used to do it before bed, would mean I'd sleep better. um, Because I didn't keep it, like you were saying earlier, all, you know, repressed and shut down, like, in my my brain and in my body. Mm Mm-hmm. All right this is the Rebel Author Podcast so tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel.
1: <laughs> uh, well I'm a I'm a fairly quiet introverted person my you know my rebellious moments aren't loud and obvious and dramatic but I do think the life choices I've made have been quite rebellious. I, um, I chose to I've chosen to be single more often than partnered particularly with raising my daughter my the rebellious part of me said nope I don't want I don't want to be with someone badly enough to be with my daughter's father with the behavior that was going on and I would rather do this myself under my own rules my own uh will for a life with my daughter so and that and um and then the other kind of rebel moment was the series of decisions of following the threads of things that didn't make sense and then creating my course and continuing to follow the threads of creating something with no real guidance in my life of entrepreneurship or how to create something like a transformational online course and cultivating the skills, but also trusting that things were going to become and evolve outside of what I could anticipate, Um, which for me, I, you know, I do worry a lot. (laughs) So looking back, I sometimes I think, wow, how did, how, how was I able to do this? You know, I think it was that this little inner rebel that got around my tendency to worry and want security
0: oh I love that I I genuinely feel like our education system and obviously I'm talking specifically about the British one because I don't I can't speak for other countries um, education systems but I do feel like we fail our kids because you know we have all of these curriculums that are so wildly important and yet we don't really teach them Um, you know, entrepreneurship, we don't really, really, truly teach them what creativity is, I I genuinely Mm -hmm. feel like creativity is suppressed by the time we get to adulthood. And that's not just schools, I think that is, you know, society at large. But I have always wondered why, you know, that more business entrepreneurial side of life isn't part of our curriculum because so many people go on to run their own businesses and you know none of us are, we you know we're all just fucking making it up as we go along because nobody's ever educated us and there is there is no program of of education on that and and yet you know so many of us do, do it but yeah I love that I love that rebellion and how empowering it was so thank you for sharing that
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah
0: Okay, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, uh, your books, courses, anything else that you would like to um, add.
1: Yeah, so you can find everything that I do on my personal website, which is janellehardy.com. That's J-A-N-E-L-L-E-H-A-R-D-Y.com. You can also find my free on-demand Outline Your Memoir Workshop at that website or by going to personalmythmaking.com forward slash on dash demand, something like that.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll also make sure um, that the links are in the show notes as well. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And of course, a giant thank you to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black, you are listening to Janelle Hardy, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. That's it for this week. Make sure you join me next week when I'll be joined by Ginny Carmichael and we'll be talking about author websites, how to build them, uh, the things that you need to include, not include, mistakes to avoid and all of that good stuff. Don't forget that uh, the Rebel Author Diary submission window uh, only has about a month left and so please do get in uh, your uh, stories and don't forget to send me your Rebel stories. I need them. I want this to continue. So yes, please do send me your rebel author stories. Okay, and I will catch you next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.